Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hey, mate, how are you going? I'm very, very good. You know, I am, uh, I am talking to the stars these days. <laughs> yes. So we're going to see if there's any bandwidth issues. Um, and, you know, you're connected to Starlink. So how, explain to me, how does that work? If I'm talking to you, where do the packets go in order to get to me? <laughs> the packets are first going 500 kilometers above Earth. <laughs> or something like that. Uh, and from there, they probably bounce back somewhere and then reach you. So, yeah, it's pretty right. fascinating stuff, you know. Mm. So for those of you that are new to um, the, the series or the podcast, Nirban got a Starlink system set up last week. Was it? It was last week, wasn't it? Yeah. There's Siri trying to chime in. Um, yeah. So you got a Starlink last week and um, it's been happy days ever since, like, 4K streaming, everything you want it to do? Yeah, 4K streaming. So, you know, I've, I've, well, Starlink has really got uh, good stats that they give you. So, you know, we watched a few um, 4K movies and you could see like the bandwidth, like the peak data rate for download hitting like 92, 95, 100 megabits per second. Uh, you know, it's dumping data. And the reason that dumps data that quickly is because uh, the server side knows that the connection probably has higher latency. So, you know, like our latency jumps around between 25. I've actually seen latency as low as 25 milliseconds, uh, which is pretty fascinating with um, with satellite connectivity. This is low Earth satellite though, uh, but 25 milliseconds to sometimes as high as 100 milliseconds. Now, 100 milliseconds sounds like a lot these days, but it used to be pretty normal, mm. maybe six, seven years ago. But yeah, given the variability in uh, in latency, end-to-end packet transmission, the amount of time it takes to move, actually the packets to move, it uh, is pretty fascinating. So yeah, I've been mm. really pleased with the system thus far. We might, you know, That's one right. of the things that might happen is that I might drop out because there might be an outage because there might be no satellite outage. And most of the time it doesn't matter. But for I think for things like Zoom, it might matter. Uh, they typically happen for a few seconds and I haven't had one in the last 24 hours, but most of the time they seem to happen at night. Not sure why. <laughs> Interesting. So yeah, right. So this is for those of you who don't know, this is a like a subscription where you pay for the hardware as well. Um, so it's kind of like a if you buy bought a new Apple iPhone, you'd have to pay for the iPhone and then pay for the the plan. You do the same thing with Starlink. I noticed on your Twitter that yeah, it shows you like everything you want to know, like pings, like max. Yep. Uh, rates and so, stuff like that so you could see that it was actually bringing forward like it was buffering right it's buffering yeah it buffers a huge amount of data uh, just up front um and yeah it gives you so like if you're connected to the wi-fi network it gives you how much data speed you can get to your say, mobile device my, my iphone but it also would calculate how much speed you're getting up to or data rates you can get up to the uh the starlink router Right, because that's where the physical connection is running between the Starlink router and the Starlink dish sitting in my room. But uh, I mean, it's just this is a fascinating piece of technology because you know, satellite internet is supposed to be slow, <laughs> crummy, mm. really bad. Um, you know, it was satellite internet. You no, know, there is an NBN provision for satellite internet, like I think it was for VSAT or something like that, and that's really crummy. Mm. This is just game changer. Like this is basically for anyone who can't get 
like high speed broadband who needs high speed broadband this is like this is like happy days like you know mm. it just makes me smile that the stuff actually works these things should work right <laughs> so mm. um and and you know the latency being not that big a deal uh, is also pretty great so and it should only get better because as you know the starlink or spacex puts more satellites up there so hopefully it gets better so you know i'm i've seen peak my peak download rate is 303 megabits per second how good is that 303 uh peak upload that i've seen is about 50 mbps 45 mbps something like that so pretty good my upload rate is now good my upload rate is now as much as my download rate used to be <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how good it is yeah i um i saw a, a a tweet by tim urban which was then retweeted by starlink i think and um it basically said that you could be anywhere in the world you could be in the middle of the ocean with a phone or even just like a computer, a laptop and a Starlink, and you could start a, you could start a company and, and run a business, employ people, do whatever you want, um, and that's kind of the age that we live in. And, and tools like this are kind of redefining the landscape, huh? So it's fascinating yeah, so stuff. Just, yeah, just to quickly add to this. So one of the things, you know, I, I wanted this high speed internet. I didn't have access to high speed NBN. So if I had access to say 100 megabits per second NBN, I would not have considered Starlink. Well, there's another reason to support Starlink because the technology is really good. And people who can afford it need to support it to bring the price down. Because I think the real game changer for the world is when this becomes cheap enough that people who don't have access to internet or good internet can actually have great internet. So change the game. This is, I think this can be a significant value creation for the world in general. Because you put the satellites up and you just need a Starlink dish you know, just think about places where, you know, rural places where there's no connectivity. This can, this can be a game changer. So I think I think this is really good for humanity as such. So, you know, one of the reasons I like to support technology that is pro, uh, you know, forward thinking and is, you know, is going to, the trickle down effect is real. And I think the trickle down effect for this one is fascinating because, you know, think about this exactly the same thing. Somebody down somewhere who doesn't have internet tomorrow could actually create the next big company employ thousands of people, well, that's great, I think. Mm, it is indeed. So today um, we're going to talk about some ASX companies. We're also going to hear it from you about, I'm going to pick your brain a bit about some of the key terms of like SaaS metrics, so software as, as a service, and just generally like the, the metrics that we use as investors to kind of compile a, a framework to analyze companies and how you can use pattern recognition from these ratios to identify companies that should keep on winning. So what are we talking about? We're talking about things like um, what does ARPU mean? What does dollar-based net retention mean? Why is churn important? These types of things. So we're going to go through them. We've got a few um, ASX companies that released results this week and either shot it out of the water or they sunk. So they're pretty volatile companies. So uh, we'll take a look at those. Um, just a reminder, any of the questions that we do answer, if you are on YouTube live, Robin's already said g'day. Any of the questions that we answer are limited to general information only. So if you want financial advice from a financial planner, like personal advice, you need to go see one of those financial planners. Um, mate, so we've just talked about Starlink. Um, what have you been working on for 7 Investing? Well, it's been a busy week. You know, um, uh, we're deep looking into um, our current recommendations, looking for new ideas, just combing through my watch list. And, you know, it looked like I was going to get the benefit of volatility for November, but then, you know, the stocks went down, then the stocks went up. I mean, how unfortunate is that? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, the, you know, just 
researching ideas and just going through my, you know, my watch list. That's been sort of my main focus other than being excited about Starlink. Do you, when you, when you pick these companies, you obviously have a list of like 30 companies or something you've said before on your list. How does a company make it from the idea to your list? Do you follow other investors or what's kind of your principal screening mechanism? Yeah, I don't have a specific mechanism for uh, screening. So like, you know, like everyone, I would run a screen, you know, what, what stocks have been going up, what stocks have been going down, what stocks have been growing, you know, quickly, like when going down, and I mean, actually share price, sometimes share price movement, plus or minus can be indicative mm. of something. So that's a good screen to run. Again, that just gives you a dump of companies. Um, combine that with, you know, things like how which companies are growing quickly, expanding margins and things like that. So those are sort of, you know, I, I, I don't do that that often, but I do it periodically to just refresh. That gives you a big dump of companies. Then, like, I have a watch list of about 20-odd companies that, you know, I would like to put onto the scorecard, an investing scorecard, for example, and I usually work off that. But then sometimes what would happen is I'll notice a company being talked about on Twitter, or I would notice a news item about a company. Oh, this company went, you know, public recently, and yada, yada, yada. And then I'll maybe, you know, look at the 10Q or the... S1, if it's a relatively new, recent um, uh, public company, and have a look and then sort of make an estimate of what I think about it. So, you know, combination of things. But I, oft, I do land up with some names that people talk about on Twitter. I do find Twitter quite interesting for finding things and discovering mm. things and for um, just general chit-chat with people and seeing what people are thinking about and talking about. And sometimes what happens is some people are talking about technicals and technicals don't interest me, but it might actually reveal a company <laughs> that I wasn't aware of. And then I would have a look. So, and then you sort of have like, you know, I have quick ways of filtering things. So I look at a company and maybe in you know, 10 seconds, I'll decide, okay, is it worth further investigation or not? And then go from there. So whole bunch of different things is mm. what I say is how stuff, you know, have a longer watch list and then it comes to the shortlist watch list and, yeah. And then, of course, there's stocks that I own, right? So those are companies that I have owned and for a long time. Many of them are on my watch list that I have decided not to add yet for whatever reason. Uh, but those are companies, again, that I follow closely. So It must help when you have to come up with one recommendation a month already having 20 to 25 that are you know, either in your portfolio or really solid, solid companies anyway. It doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't it's the same problem every month like yeah it's it's fa i find this i've actually forcing yourself to pick a stock is fascinating uh, mm. because like you know if somebody said make a portfolio i can almost make a portfolio it's quicker and easier for me to do and say ah this would do fine but so you know, I have to pick one stock and i really do worry about what's going to happen now what's going to happen like soon a lot of things that I would not worry if I was picking a bunch of stocks together. And I know I could look at the entirety of the stocks that I picked as a bunch and as a portfolio, as a group. And But yeah, I just find it's, it's, it's a fact. I've done this for so long, but I still find it difficult. <laughs> that one <laughs> stock, is, it's a pretty difficult. It's like, you know, and you know, I struggle with it until I said, okay, that one. And, and sometimes what happens is once you have said, okay, that one, and then you start, you know, you just convince yourself, yes, it's that one. That's the greatest company right now. And it's the best company right now. And you just are convinced. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't even be saying these things <laughs> in public, but, you know, <laughs> but it's true that there is a sense of, there is, you know, once you've picked it, it sort of has an overpowering effect. There's a lot of psychological mm. things that go on in, in people's mind, right? When, you know, st the stock picker's mind. So, you know, maybe a little bit of- but There is indeed. Behind the scenes. Confirmation. <laughs> 
confirmation bias as you write it out. Um, yeah. yeah, it's definitely <laughs> happened to me once or twice too, I've got to admit. So, And one of the companies that we're going to talk about today is actually um, maybe one of those companies. So um, that'll be kind of in, a bit of um, intellectual honesty for our, for our viewers and listeners today. Um, we've had a question come through from Robin. He uh, asked, any thoughts on mining companies that focus on lithium for the future of the EV market? Interesting question. We we'll maybe try and tack that on the end there, Robin. So stay tuned. Um, just in the last week, while you've been playing with Starlink, I've actually been playing with a bit of um, automation. I just love learning about um, coding and just new ways of doing things quicker and more efficient. Um, I think there's this there's this skit from Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is um, from when there's a new captain on the scene, and he says, "I pride myself on efficiency, efficiency, efficiency." Um, <laughs> and then someone asks, "Well, why?" You could have just said it once. Um, and that's 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 kind of like where I'm at. Like I, I I like things to be really efficient. Like you know, in programming, when you when you enter some sort of variable or or data, you enter it once and then you reuse that throughout your entire program or whatever. And so I kind of approach that when I'm building things and looking at companies and, and whatever, I think that's a really interesting way to think about companies too, because that is basically like has the founder or the, the person who started this put in effort to think about how it scales. And basically there's that saying, I think it comes from Amazon, which is like one, uh, one step at a time ferociously or step-by-step ferociously, which basically means doing the right thing upfront, doing it in the order that it should be done, but doing it properly. And so I've been spending my week just doing some some of that sort of stuff. We've had some podcasts with across both of our channels, the Australian Investors Podcast, Australian Finance Podcast, and you'll be pleased to know, mate. One of the we did a bit of a giveaway on the podcast. We like to do one giveaway a month on the Australian Finance Podcast, and this month we gave away a well, last month I should say, gave away an Apple Watch. Yep, top of the range Apple Watch, um, and that went to Chanel because she wrote in with her ten favorite money tips. So. Um, yeah, it was a bit of fun and we got to release that podcast with her this week. So that was great. And um, we also introduced a new thing at Rask. I don't know if, if you do this. I know you do this in a way at 7investing. I just don't know if, how far it goes. But one of the things that we've tried to do recently in the last few months for our membership service, Rask Invest, is um, introduce research ratings. So not just investment ratings, but research ratings where we rate companies across things like the competitive advantage or moat, uh, things like optionality. So how do we do we think there's embedded value in this this organization that people can't see and things like management we rate management gold silver or bronze and also things like market dynamics you can use tools like porter's five forces and and think about the industry and that's basically what we do but we do it in a qualitative and quantitative way so it's a bit more organic than using say something just straight up like a formula and we try and introduce these ratings so that our members can understand basically where we see the strengths of these businesses and the opportunity. So it's a really, it's a new thing. I think Morningstar has been doing it for a very long time. Um, they have moat ratings, they have like star ratings and many research houses do it, but it's trying to reinforce kind of that qualitative aspect of a business and an investment opportunity, which we think is really important. So we've been working on that. It's taken us months um, to get around to doing that, but um, finally we've done it. So yeah, it's been a bit of a busy week, but Hey, we're going to talk about some software uh, kind of acronyms, some jumbled up kind of finance alphabet soup, if you like, where <laughs> we tend to just throw these things around and then expect that people that aren't in finance can understand them. Even things like SaaS 
you know, we say SaaS, what does that mean? You know, we, we have a, most of us have a pretty basic handle on investing. I remember when I was starting out learning about finance, this was way back in the day, in my, my teens, I, I didn't know the difference between earnings and profit. And that is such an innocuous you know, thing. They're actually the same thing. Um, it's just depending on what you want to, however you want to call it and however you want to phrase it, whether it's net earnings, whether it's operating earnings, whether it's operating profit after tax, net profit after tax, like you've got to just understand these kind of little details. And so we're just going to try and um, kind of just air the closet on some of these some of these acronyms, and in particular on software companies. So um, that's kind of both of our areas of focus. So um, why don't we just start at the top, mate? And and I've got to hand it to you. You wrote an article on one of these terms, which we'll get to at the end, and it appeared first in Google when I was trying to find literature on it. So kudos to you. The first thing we might talk about is we're just going down the list that we've put together. Can you just explain very the very basics, we're going to start at basics and we're going to make it a little bit harder towards the end. What is revenue and then what is ARPU? So revenue is relatively simple. It's just how many dollars you have made in a given period from selling your software, right? It's not how many dollars you have received, but it's how many dollars basically you're booked towards the sale or booked towards the use of your software. Use of your software is important because people tend to pay for software in advance. So we're not talking about that. Uh, but yeah, it's how much you can book uh, this quarter or this year or this period for the software that you're typically in this case is not selling is, but basically people are using because most of the cloud software would be cloud-based. How do you think I go? Is that all right? Yeah, I think that's good. And revenue, obviously, it goes across not just the software industry. We have that almost anywhere. What's one really important distinction to make here is when we say revenue, we're not talking about cash flow. So those are two different things. So some people think that when you make revenue, you make cash. But there are many instances, particularly outside of software, like in like agriculture, for example, where companies earn revenue because they're required to under accounting standards, say, for example, the increase in the value of olive trees or pine plantations, but it's not actual cash flow. It's just accounting yes. revenue. So those are two different things. But for software, I'd say your definition is spot on. How about then ARPU? ARPU is some, sometimes ARPU. what we call it. What is- this is a fascinating term that came from the world of telco, right? I mean, ARPU was big hmm. in the telco, tel- telco, which is telecom world. ARPU is just average revenue per user. This is relevant because, you know, if you've got uh, the average revenue per user going up, then that's good. It basically means you're selling more uh, or more is being purchased by your client group, client base. It means you have more modules being sold or, you know, if it's a usage-based platform, then more people are using it uh, or they're using more of it. And, and that's that's great. Usually, you know, higher ARPA would mean sort of indirectly relate to satisfaction. People are satisfied with what you're offering. They're getting value out of it. They're spending more with you. So that's what ARPU is. Great definition. I like it. So we like to see ARPU going up because it means that the the spend per user on average is going up. Great. Okay. So next one, we're flying through these, which is good, uh, is gross margin. We talked, you and I talked about this gross profit margin, gross margin. And we talked about this a little while ago. Um, and this is typically when people talk about software, they say, oh, it's got high gross margins and that's a good thing. So can you just explain what that means? This is like moving further down the income statement, right? Yes. So the gross margin is interesting because gross margin basically would say, you know, there's some cost for making the software, right? Now that cost is there. There's cost for 
um, delivering the software as well, right? So mm-hmm. if the soft, software is running on the cloud, then you know you have cloud infrastructure bills that you're paying for, right? Those would also be for cost of goods. So the cost of goods is going to incorporate that. If you have uh, people delivering customer success, like they're helping the customers understand how to use the software and how to deploy it. So basically acting as consultants, but provided by the company, they would also be part of the cost of goods sold. Uh, mm-hmm. They'd be incorporated there most of the time. Sometimes they might actually be being lowered down in the sales and marketing. So this is basically all the direct costs related to provisioning, enabling, and delivering um, the software. Right now, creation of the product uh, or new ideas that's basically sits under R and D. Right, it'll be R and D cost. Um, and if people are, you know, helping actually sell, produce new, new logo wins for customers, and that would be sales and marketing, right? So or advertising, it'll be sitting under sales and marketing. Uh, but yeah, the basic, the, the gross, the gross margin would be basically revenue minus costs of goods sold. And there's a little bit of flex in terms of what actually is cost of goods sold mm. for software. Um, you know, as, as I said, you could you could move whether customer success should be how much of it should be in cost of goods sold, how much could be sales and marketing that is you know variable, how much of the R and D is the R and D, and how much is actually day to day running is also you know <laughs> uh, a little bit you know depends. <laughs> I, I think there's mm. there's enough room there uh, that you can make these judgment calls. So. Uh, and then, of course, there's cost for running things in the cloud, which is very easy to understand. Um, that, that's just the cost. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really rounded definition. So basically, on the income statement, you have revenue, which is what we just talked about, minus the cost of goods sold gives you uh, gross profit, um, gross gross margin in dollar terms. Sometimes we express it as a percentage, and we like to see high percentages because that means that. Um, there's only a little bit going to that cost of goods sold. The way I think of cost of goods sold and the way I explain it is kind of the unavoidable costs involved in selling. So if there's anything unavoidable, that's basically going to go in there, or at least it should. Um, And then all the other stuff further down the income statement um, are expenses and they can be separately kind of broken out uh, for you. So things like R&D and sales and marketing, as you mentioned. Okay. So the reason we're doing these in a very deliberate order because they actually are kind of all building to, to... an understanding of investing in software companies. Um, the next one, which we can put in here, I guess, is churn. Uh, just very basically, what does churn mean when we talk about that in, in software? Yeah, and this is for our listeners or people who are viewing this. You know, this list and order was put together by Owen. So he did the hard work of actually making it logically flow like this. Just I had no contribution to this. In fact, I just saw it, you know, I'm coming up with the answers. I didn't even get to prep for this. I should, I should have got some time. This is like quiz. He's like quizzing me here. Uh, it's, it's great fun. So churn, okay, churn is basically... Uh, here's another thing I wrote about churn. So this this stuff I actually did some analysis. Churn uh, and lifetime value and ARR. These are three things I actually had wrote an article uh, for our, uh, as an advisor update just recently last week or not too long ago, All three right, days. Okay. So uh, and I actually quite enjoyed doing this. So churn is uh, just the percentage of customers leaving. Okay. Ideally, you want to describe churn in terms of you know 100 people. Uh, if you have 100 customers and one leaves, then it's 1% churn, right? Uh, retention rate is just one minus the churn rate. And uh, that's just churn, customers leaving. Okay, so you've written this article for Seven Investing, which is actually a free article. It was the first one that appeared in Google. I'm just sharing my screen with you now. 
while we're here, so we've just discussed churn, which is basically the percentage of customers leaving. And the opposite of that would be uh, retention. So if you have one of every four customers leave, that would be a churn of 25%, one divided by four. Um, And if you have um, the opposite of that would be 75% stay. So that'd be retention. Okay. Yes. How about this? Can the probably the one that we've spoken about a lot recently, which is very important, is um, dollar-based net retention (DBNR). This is yes. a kind of a bit of a step up from the other metrics that we just talked about. But can you, because it relates to churn, I think it's worthwhile explaining. So can you just kind of as as easily as you can just explain this for us? Yeah, I think we're we you know now we are jumping a bit because one of the things that we could talk about is. The relationship between churn and lifetime value, right? Okay. Um, Let's talk that, about that then. You did, do you go in the order that makes sense for you and for listeners? No, I go in the order that Owen told me to go on. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so, and then we can come back to this. So, lifetime value is very simple, right? Lifetime value is actually you can calculate lifetime value as one over one minus retention, or one over churn rate. Okay. So the lower the churn, so if your churn rate is one percent then your lifetime value is basically one divided by 0.01, which gives you 100. Then you, so okay. lifetime value basically tells you the average time you expect your customers to stay with you. Now that 100 sounds way too large. Basically when you've got churn that, churn that low, it almost means that customers are going to use your software for as long as you know uh, your company is going to be around. It seems like that, but it's not quite true, but that's what the math says. The big thing about churn is that if your churn is 50%, then your lifetime value is like really small, right? And if your churn is really low, like, you know, 2% or something like that, then your lifetime value is really high. And, and a lifetime is really high for customers. And that's really good because the more the lower the churn, the more you can spend up front to acquire those customers to have big fat free cash flow down in the future. But if your churn is high, then you really don't have the potential of doing that because you're spending a lot of money to acquire these people who are just leaking away, right? So it's like a leaky mm. bucket um, mm. phenomena, right? So, so so it's like that, you know, that the duck that's swimming across the pond in front of you and it's wiggling, wiggling its legs really quickly, but it's only going a certain speed. If yes. you have, if you have less churn, it means it it's better because there's more customers staying. So it means you don't have to reacquire the, the guys and the gals that you, the customers that you got last year, they're still with you. So exactly. the new customers that you're getting are just adding to that list rather exactly. than like a sieve kind of just losing them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That so le- leaky, you, you don't want a leaky bucket. It basically talks to a couple of things. Uh, you know, a leaky bucket basically means either your product market fit is not there or your product is really crappy or that you don't have your sales and marketing figured out. There's something wrong. It might be that you have a great product, but you're not selling it to the right people. That's again, another reason why you have high churn. So just figuring that out is, is really, really important. And it helps uh, with sort of, you know, planning for these long lifetimes and then sort of, you know, uh, enjoying the fruits of those long lifetimes. So the, the dollar-based net retention, uh, this is, the, the metric that's used quite often, right? And, or you can just talk about, it's called just the net retention rate, right? And that's a, that's what the article talks about. So, and the interesting thing here is that a lot of companies stopped talking about churn um, because mm. churn does not tell you on a dollar basis what happened. Whereas 
the dollar-based net retention basically takes the churn, but also talks about the dollar dollar value of the churn. So if you lose a low-value customer, that's okay. If you lose a high-value customer, that has a problem. So this this example that I had is just a simple, fictitious example. You know, at the start, let's say you have four four customers: A, B, and C, and D. Um, the first one is a thousand dollars a year in terms of value that you're going to get out of him from that year. The second also thousand. The third also thousand. And fourth also a thousand. How simple is that? It never works out exactly like that, but that's just an example. In scenario um, one, what happens is the customers A, B, and C continue spending exactly the same as they were spending at the beginning. Right. Think so of thousand this dollars from those first three. Yep. Yes. And one of them churned away. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, what is interesting about this one, though, is it, this metric, though, that it it doesn't capture the fact that actually you had churn of a customer and you actually your total income at the end of this first period is actually less than that at the beginning. Right. If you notice this mm-hmm. example, so it, you know. Because dollar-based net retention, by definition, is looking at those customers that you have left at the end of period one, compare that with those customers that you had at the beginning of the period, and you're looking at the common customers and how much revenue are you generating from that base. So it's net of churn, it's net of upsell, and net of downsizing, right, or net of you know, contraction. So net of expansion, net of contraction and churn. So in this case, your churn actually is one over four. So 25%, your churn on a customer basis, Mm. but your dollar-based net retention is actually hundred percent because those three people that you had, those three people are common across and they have maintained their sales with you in terms of 100% being 100%. No, so basically in this case for scenario one, it says that those customers that stay with you, they continue spending the same amount as they were spending last year. I think the key there is the the customers that stay with you because some customers have left. So we're excluding those that have left. And that's so if you were to look at this, you'd be like, well, I'm only earning $3,000 now where I was earning $4,000 last year from these customers. Even though my dollar-based net retention is 100% still, it's it's less. So you've got to, (laughs) obviously the punchline is here, you've got to use more than one metric. Okay, so what about another scenario? So we've still got, Let's say we've got those four customers paying $1,000 each at the beginning of the year. Let's do another scenario where at the end of the year, there's a different mix. This is the scenario too, that exactly that you talk about on the sh- on there, which is, you know, customer A lands up now doubling their spend to 2,000. Customer B ex- ex- increases spend to 1,500, which is 50% more. Customer uh, C, uh, and that should have been C, there's a typo there. Oh, I noticed that now, mm-hmm. uh, it, it should be 1,000. And then one of them has churned out. In which case, in this particular case, then in scenario two, the total spend from those customers that remained has increased by 50%. Mm. Right? So we've got, so, so got dollar-based net retention of 150%. Even though we've lost one customer, the DBNR is 150% because those that remain on average are paying more. Exactly. Yeah. So the DBNR is really useful for on a customer basis, on a, on a retention basis to think about how much more are you able to get from those people that remain with you, right? And it's one of the metrics that a lot of companies talk about, that on a dollar mm-hmm. basis, net of churn, net of expansion, net of contraction, how much am I getting out of my cohort that is staying with me, 
right? Ideally, actually, I would like to see both, you know, right? But I mean, you can make out whether, uh, you know, if there's high dollar-based net retention, but revenue is not growing, then then you know that something is going on, right? When Mm -hmm. you get high, basically, you want to see the combination of high dollar-based net retention with, with revenue growth. And that basically tells you that everything is actually going well. One thing that I'll, I'll say, this is this is the interesting bit, is why I think people talk about DBNR or basically net retention rate is this. So think about a company, initially when a company has generating less revenue in total, everything is going to be driven by new logo wins, with new logo, basically new customer wins, right? Mm-hmm. But think about an early stage business that has DBNR at say 150%, right? It's generating 50% more from those customers that stayed with them. And it is winning new customers at a phenomenal pace. If it can maintain that 50% growth from existing customers, that is phenomenal because eventually when the business becomes large enough in size, you would generate a lot more from your existing customers. Your existing customers become like this cow that you can continue milking for a long time. And, and that happens via a couple of different ways, right? Happens because your product expands or you're able to charge more for your product or a combination of those things, right? Uh, or because you know people bought initially few modules and then expanded. They basically bought more of your software over time, right? So a billion dollar business with a net retention rate of 120%, well, that's $200 million just coming from existing customers. That is pretty phenomenal. So yeah. And I think that's, I think, the key takeaway and why I think that that metric is important. Yeah, we've talked about it a lot, just insofar as it being like a, a crucial metric to, to determine that kind of land and expand types software uh, business model where, you know, you might start, they might start with one module, you know, Cloudflare might be a good example. You might get Cloudflare for hosting, but then you realize there's this whole other suite that comes with the Cloudflare platform. And then all of a sudden you're spending more because it's a better service and you'd switch from your current providers for whatever it might be for security or whatever. And then all of a sudden you're spending more and more and more. And so this is a really powerful one. Um, the other one that gets thrown around a lot, at least here in Australia, and this is probably the fine one, oh, we've probably got two here, the, is this thing called ARR. If I, spelt, if I spelt it out for people, I think they'd guess what it is. But what is ARR? So ARR is just annual recurring revenue. Right. So uh, recurring revenue basically is, you know, if you sign up to a subscription, like you have a Netflix subscription or an Amazon Prime, then you, you know that, you know, there's a monthly fee that you're paying. And as long as you're not canceling, that's what you're likely to pay. Right. So you look at your customer base and say, well, I've got 100 customers and they're each on average paying this much. Then you take that and you multiply it and that gives you your annual recurring revenue. It talks nothing about the churn or anything. It gives you any point in time, a snapshot of the revenue that is recurring, right? Uh, of course, you could adapt this to say that, well, this is how much of it I would, I'm likely to retain, and therefore, that's the re- re- recurring part. But let's it's, let's just think of it as existing customers that are paying a subscription fee. You multiply that, and you get it. So annual recurring revenue is just, just that, and ARR is not the same thing as revenue, because okay. you might have picked up a customer, say, in the middle of the year, right? And they're likely to spend, say, $100,000 every year. So your annual recurring revenue is from that customer $100,000. But for that particular year, you might only report $50,000 because you've only used them for half the year. So typically, revenue would trail annual recurring revenue. Annual recurring revenue is like a leading indicator. So if annual recurring revenue is growing quickly, 
uh, and the churn rates are low or there's expansion happening, then you would expect revenue at some point to get to that point of the ARR is going to trail. It can be a leading indicator and it's kind of useful to get, get a sense of how quickly the subscription base is growing and how much are they spending. I've got two questions that have come through here quickly for you. The first one came from Vinoth who asks, can this metric, as in dollar-based net retention, can this be used to justify a higher price-to-sales ratio? Yes, that's a brilliant. I love that question. So the beauty is, you know, actually this is an article. Unfortunately, this is actually behind the paywall. So if you you can think of think of this this way, I'll just try to work it out here for people. If you've got fifty percent more that you can generate from your existing base versus somebody who can generate twenty percent more, now think about that compounded over a large number of years. As long as you're bringing in new people into the system and you're able to extract that extra from them over that time, this is pretty powerful. And you'd see that there's a huge divergence. So 100, you'd see that the total revenue growth that you can get just by the power of that retained customer's growth is phenomenal. And it's indirectly, you can think about it this way. People love you so much that they're willing to spend so much more with you, right? So it's just a power of the platform as well that's being reflected. So yes, I would expect that companies with high uh, DBNRs are, are appropriately valued as such, right? The only caveat I would say is that if, if you have a relatively small suite of products that you're offering and you're not a usage-based pricing uh, model, then you could, if your product is that good that everybody buys everything upfront, then your DBNR is naturally going to be low. So you have to think about that as well. But yeah, for certain business, like Snowflake is a great example where the DBNR is like mm. 150, 160%. Like, I mean, that, there's reason why that stock trades in the multiple. It's trades because not many business. And of course, it's got usage-based pricing. So it's not really a fixed, you know, seat-based pricing model. So it basically says that people are just using more and more of this thing and people love it, right? And that mm. can really phenomenal, that can just give you phenomenal compounding. So yes, and my rule of thumb is I look for 120%. Like that's just, like, I like to look for 100%. I'll make allowances here and there, but like, you know, 120% is really top notch in my view. Okay. One more question, which is from Robin, Robin who asks, would this metric of dollar-based net retention be easily available on the financial statement of software companies like Xero? Uh, I can answer a bit of that and then I'll throw it over. Uh, Vinoth says 168 is the current DBNR for Snowflake. Uh, so, so for back to uh, Robin's question on zero. So, zero, if off the top of my head, reports monthly um, annualized recurring revenue. So, what that means is it basically takes the last months of recurring revenue and then multiplies that by 12. Um, so, you know, I, I guess an example, the zero is a very stable business in terms of its user base. So, its churn's quite low. So, you, it, it can do this and it's reasonable, but Imagine if you had like an ice cream business that sold ice creams on subscription. If they took the recurring revenue figure um, in February in Australia uh, when it's really hot and they're selling a lot of ice creams, you might get a different figure for um, for recurring revenue than if you got, did it in the middle of winter. So um, that's just an example of how recurring revenue figures can kind of go either way. But um, DBNR's it itself. Um, so that was a kind of an example of recurring revenue, but DBNR itself is not as popular in Australia as it is in the US, at least maybe they just don't want to show it as much. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was going to comment on this. So when I looked at, uh, so one of the things is that here's something to realize, right? So even a DBNR for a business like zero is actually not going to be very high because it doesn't have significant upsell mm. potential, right? So my, actually for a business like zero, really the metric that should matter is just the churn rate, which would be, you know, 
which would reflect the churn rate you'd see of SMBs, right? And and as long as it's just that, that's good. Or lower than that, that's great, right? Uh, so we have to uh, compensate. So this DBNR metric is really an enterprise SaaS model uh, metric. When, and by that, I mean companies that sell to other big businesses. Uh, it's relevant for that. If you sell to smaller businesses, then um, a DBNR is a difficult metric to show. And mm. also, if you're a small software company, then I mean, how do you really show it? So it's not really shown in, in Australia largely because I think the companies that are here are more niche. Uh, they have a small number of modules. I believe Elmo has at times reported, I think, net retention rate. Yeah, I think we talked uh, I think about they, that. Yeah. And I think they do report net retention rate. Again, you have to contextualize it that, you know, if you're serving that type of customer base, like small, uh, you know, small to medium scale customers, then it's going to be different from that you that you serve enterprise customer bases. So I haven't seen that mm-hmm. many, but Elmo is one definitely that reports uh, net retention rates. Mm-hmm. Right. And the final one on our kind of list of metrics is uh, customer acquisition cost. So CAC, C-A-C is often how it's written. Um, can you explain what this is? Maybe how to calculate CAC and then what? Yeah, so CAC. CAC is just the cost. You know, this is one of those metrics that I'm actually not a big fan of so, uh, okay. because I don't really pay that much attention to CAC because a lot of times companies actually don't report CAC directly. Mm. But so CAC is basically just the cost that it takes to acquire an average customer, which is, you know, net of what you're spending on sales and marketing and things like that to get this, you know, you can compute it. But, and then you can, of course, use, I guess, CAC became really famous in, uh, the startup land because people wanted the CAC to be a, you know, look at CAC and then look at LTV. So LTV is the lifetime value, look at CAC and you want that multiple to be like, you know, 4X or more. That sort of became like, you know, the holy grail in the startup land. And if you were like 8X, uh, like lifetime value is eight times CAC, then, you know, well, that's great, right? It just basically told you how much more you could spend to get customers. But so I think CAC is, is useful from that point of view, but I think, yeah, I don't use CAC that often. That's just mm. my okay. Yeah, so customer acquisition cost is basically something that you can get if management break out sales and marketing on the income statement. You can take that and you can divide it by the number of users in the period. Uh, if you don't know necessarily, like if they report net users, so if a management team just reports number of net users or the user number is net of um, churn, then you don't always know exactly how many they acquired versus how many they lost. So you can't get an accurate reading on what is the customer acquisition cost. But if you could, if you knew how many customers were added during the period, just added, not lost, so just added, uh, you could take the sales and marketing, divide that by the number of users added to get you basically a cost of acquisition, the cost of adding those users. And this can be really, I find this can be useful when um, you're trying to work out at a company is in that kind of rapid adoption phase where it is able to spend the same amount, more or less, but the actual per unit cost is coming way down. And that's kind of a sign that a business might be hitting an inflection point, at least in terms of acquisition of customers. So that's a that's a that's an interesting one. So that kind of rounds out our software metrics. And you can said I, that you basically. Hmm? Can I quickly ask a question? This is a, so how yeah. would how would you then adjust? I guess you wouldn't in that case. Just for because sales and marketing would also include like expansion revenue, right? So yeah. so sales and marketing is also con- contributing towards expansion revenue. 
And if that's not breaking, broken down, then it's really hard to know. You kind of have to guess estimate what the expense. Well, I guess if you have the DBNR number, then you know how much the expansion revenue is. You take that out. And then you'd have to know how much was the revenue that churned out. So, I mean, you, you have to make some guesses there to get to true yeah. CAC. But you can get to a first order CAC via what you said. Yeah, absolutely. You can. You can just get, and I think the the important point is kind of directionally right here. If it's you know ten or twelve dollars for a customer, I don't know what the product is that they're selling, but if it's a ten dollar customer acquisition cost, and you know it's now all of a sudden look like it, it looks like it's heading to five dollars. Well, then that could be something that's really interesting. You may not know perfectly. Like customers don't always break out. What's customer success versus marketing? Sometimes they do. I think Afterpay for a long time broke out just flat out marketing. Um, so you could potentially do that. Some companies provide it for you, but you just want to check their assumptions. As always, you want to check yeah. their assumptions. But in summary here, we've got um, dollar-based net retention. We've got churn rates are important. We've got uh, total revenue, um, uh, annualized recurring revenue. We've got a lot of metrics here, but I guess the, the, keys is, the key is, if you have to go back and listen to this again, we're looking for customers that are spending more our companies um, that have customers that are spending more, so dollar-based net retention, we're looking for that revenue to be increasing. We're looking for low churn or high retention, depending on which way you want to think about it, and a wide gross margin. Those are just some of the things you want to look for because those are signs that a business can justify a higher, higher valuation. Okay, so we've we've gone through this uh, list and it's taken us a while, but it's I think it was really valid. Um, we do have some news that we can cover off on here. Um, one of them... The first one is a company called Bubs Australia, and I'll just get the update up. I'll just make sure I've got the right one in front of me. So Bubs Australia is um, a business that is involved in infant formula, but it's not in the typical way that you would probably think about it. It does uh, goat's milk. So goat's milk, infant formula, goat's milk for adults as well. Full disclosure, I recommended this company quite a while ago, and it it subsequently became a sell pretty quickly once things didn't work out. So um I held it for a little while and I think we may have lost a bit of money on this, but so basically what is Bubs? Bubs was started by um, a woman by the name of Christy Carr once she realized that her children probably were not necessarily, I don't think they were um, intolerant to dairy, but they just didn't sit well with their tummies. So she tried goat's milk and she managed to start kind of this wave of, you know, it's important to have goat's milk and found out there were some benefits for it for many people and since it's expanded throughout Australia and globally through China in particular. And it IPO'd, I believe, in 2017. And it's pretty much like an, you'd analyze it in a similar way you'd analyze an A2 milk, which we've talked about in the past, um, or even a Bellamy's before that. And basically, it sells here in Australia, but also overseas. It did, re- did rely on that suitcase trade, which we've talked about a bit going into China. It's since kind of rerouted that a bit. And I don't have the, a full context of why or how they've done it. But you can see here in the quarterly update, uh, shares jumped 40% in a single day of trading um, based on this update. So you can see here revenue um, up 96% for the first quarter of 2021. Infant formula was up 124% or 64% quarter over quarter. Uh, Adult goat milk powder uh, increased 100% on the prey up 61% quarter over quarter. Um, you can see here that they're often lower base. They're, they're growing strongly in China. Um, they've also, for those of you that are U- US listeners, Walmart is now an official vendor um, or Bubs is a product that can be stocked on the shelves and they expect first uh, online sales this month. So in the month of October, 2021 in Walmart. So it's a 
it's expanding uh, geographically, but principally this global focus is really important for the business. If we drop down to the cash flow statement, um, I think we get a sense of basically how big it is. So those numbers look great and they certainly seem to be, at least the market thinks so. But if you drop down to the cash flow statement for the first quarter, we can see that receipts from customers are 15.2 million or 15.3 million. And we can see uh, $490,000 of net operating cash. So still a small business. It hit a similar inflection point, I think a year, year and a half ago um, before COVID hit. And uh, things were going well until that point, and then it just couldn't execute, and everything obviously happened to an Australia trying to check trade war, if you like, and then also you know COVID hitting and constricting that that suitcase trade. But Bubs, um, yeah, Bubs is a very interesting business in the sense that it's slightly different to the other providers in the market. When I was researching the company, it didn't really get the shelf space that the others got in the stores. So like Optimal which almost always sells out here in Australia, at least pre-COVID it did, um, and uh, A2 Milk for, an, for a time there, whereas it seems to be a bit of a role reversal with A2 Milk at the moment, uh, at least in the stores that I've checked out. And um, Bubs believes that it's the, it's the number one selling uh, infant formula over the last few months. So um, we've all seen what can happen when infant formula companies do do well. They can scale very quickly and their cash flow grows kind of exponentially for a pretty short period of time. But it almost seems like sooner or later they're doomed to fail because they rely on a sometimes they rely on certain you know markets or channels that aren't necessarily sustainable and pretty vulnerable to um, constraints. So for example, if there's too much inventory in the channel, that operating leverage can quickly turn on a dime. So um, Bubs is a really interesting business. Like I said, it rose 40% this week. Um, it's not a business that I own. Um, I'll just check the market cap for you. Have you ever owned Bubs, mate? Or I did, it? and I did. Yeah, I owned Bubs, and I've actually sold my shares some time back uh, as well. Mm. So a couple of, and I'll echo some of your comments. So they did, did a deal with the Chemist Warehouse, or one of them. One of those, yep. um, they had a deal. It was a stock deal, I think. So that gave them shelf space. You're absolutely right when you say that. This is one of the things that I've seen with. Um, Many of these businesses that are still in the phase of creating a big brand for themselves, right? So you have to realize that a business with a $15 million of sales in a quarter doesn't have a brand yet. Like, I mean, it has a brand brand, but it's not like, it's not Tag Heuer yeah. <laughs> or, 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 or Louis Vuitton, right? So, you know, that's the ultimate goal to get to like Tag Heuer or, or, and nobody cares about Tag Heuer these days, I guess, uh, with the Apple watches, but it's, you know. <laughs> But, but anyways, it's not tag here is my point. So the point is that there's a long gap between that and, and anything else, right? So the shelf space game is really important. I've seen that with uh, BWX, which, which makes Sukin and a few other things. You get the shelf space, you've got shelf space really matters. And if you have really small volume sales, you put things on the shelf and that's front and center of people that sells. Yeah. But then to double the sales from there, you need more shelf space. <laughs> <laughs> and that doesn't naturally happen that way. See, at some point, you need the brand to really catch on. And I, just, I always thought that maybe the A2 brand had caught on and, and, and they were doing sales at scale, right? At the billion-dollar scale. And then it's some sort of catered from there. So, I mean, you can get to a billion-dollar scale and then still cater, uh, which is what the, uh, the A2 milk story is. So, I mean, this is a tough gig, right, to create a brand and all. But, you know, um, yeah, to your point again, I was quite happy when, when I had looked at this first and they had this really accelerated sales growth. And the other thing I'll say about Bob's, and this is from past memory about the company, 
they did a few things well. So their China story is really interesting because they've got Chinese investors. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and I think they've got one of the milk company folks from China to also have, in, I think Bean, Bean Mate is one of the investors in the company. That helps. Mm-hmm. That helps with distribution. And that helps with having those people help push the distribution. And as long as you can keep pushing the distribution, you can grow. And that's what they got their Victorian facility. Um, and one of the reasons that they got the Victorian facility was because it was already producing a product that was sold into China, I believe. So yes. it kind of made the approval process for Chinese regulators to approve the facility to then sell into China. Um, yep. Whereas a lot of Australian and New Zealand companies were kind of just saying, come and approve us, you know, um, here we are yes. waving their hand, whereas this is already approved. So um, they, they've said that they expect growth to continue and they're going to keep ramping up manufacturing. So, I mean, those are pros- positive signs. I just think you just got to go in with your eyes open to the, the, the kind of the risks with exporting. And if you are, if you do have your eyes open um, to that, um, you know, they've got a bit of cash on the balance sheet now. If they can stay cash flow positive, that's obviously great for shareholders. So um, no more capital raisings. Uh, keep all that in mind. But that's Bubs. It's on the ASX under the ticket code BUB. Yeah, I was just, I guess the reason that I sold was that not just COVID, but there were kind of, there was expansion outside of infant formula and milk. Um, there was talk of all different things at a time when the business wasn't at scale yet. So um, there are so too many things basically saying there's not enough focus. Uh, and that was, while it wasn't executing, was an issue for me. The other company that um, was really interesting this week here in Australia is um, NetWealth. So we've talked about this company in the past, so I thought it'd be worth bringing it up. Um, I can just share my screen again with you, mate, once I find it. This is a company Uh, I really, really like. Um, Yeah, this is a Melbourne-based company and great founders. I've had the chance to speak uh, speak with the founders. And yeah, this is really, really good company. Really solid execution thus far. And look at that. Record, 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 record. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so basically i'll jump to the bottom line first uh which is the outlook which is basically so net wealth for those of you that uh, aren't familiar with it is a platform and it basically allows financial advisors and wealth managers and individuals to use a software platform where they can invest they can manage their portfolios all the portfolios of their clients and invest in a range of things like manage funds etfs shares whatever you can really think of is basically coming or on the platform already. So uh, NetWealth is one of the two big play- the two big new players, which is Hub24 is on the ASX under the ticket code HUB. But down the bottom here in the uh, September quarter business update, they've said due to record net inflows in the September quarter and the growth of our already substantial new business pipeline, we upgrade our funds under administration net inflow, so the amount of money that's coming onto the platform, for FY22 from $10 billion to approximately 125. So it's a 25% increase in what they expect to onboard in the next year, which is pretty substantial. And the reason um, that's substantial is because so far they've, some people kind of criticize platform businesses for saying, oh, well, that could just be the stock market going up, but actually not a lot of it is from the stock market going up. So, you know, in the September quarter, they um, had a $4.8 billion increase in funds under administration, um, but there's only a 0.8 billion of that from the market movements. So this is net wealth. It's a really interesting business. Um, NWL, I own shares in this company. Um, you can see here that it's the basic play of net wealth and hub 24 and premium, which is further down is basically to be better than the current platforms of the big banks here in Australia and to snatch 
advisors and wealth managers and, and groups away from those players, um, which seems to be happening because both Hub and NetWealth are capturing more flow and the incumbents are losing out. So uh, that seems to be playing out and these guys are going to benefit because they effectively connect, uh, collect annuity-like fees. You know, they're just management fees that just kind of trickle in the door every day of the week. So um, really interesting business. Sounds like you like it too. I love it. I, I just, it is one of those very high quality sort of companies that you can find. Um, but, you know, like it's a platform business, right? Once you're on the platform, it, you know, you're unlikely to migrate, at least in the near term. If your platform is really good, you're going to attract more people onto the platform. Yeah. And then you're competing against dinosaurs. That's even better. <laughs> so <laughs> I love, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the ice age, the ice age <laughs> is happening. And uh, yeah. these, uh, you know, these things are going to, you know, <laughs> take over. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. It's, and again, and it's very, it's very, there's pretty high operating leverage in this business. This, the EBITDA margins on this company is, is pretty phenomenal, right? What, 40, 50%, 45% plus when I last had looked at it. Uh, yeah, we have mm. really, really well, good business. It pays a small dividend. Yeah, I I, I like it. I don't own shares, but I really like it. And uh, I had spoken with the um, the the senior, Heine, Heine, Heine uh, Michael mm-hmm. Heine. He would not like it if I say Hein, uh, Michael Heine, phenomenal, uh, you know, and phenomenal, very down to earth and really explains his business, knows his business really well and, you know, and really long-term focused. So I like it. Yeah, great. Um, Yeah, like I said, I own shares and the shares ended up, I think it was 14% yesterday. So uh, that's unfair, right? They're guiding for 25% increase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Unless the shares it was 10% overvalued. <laughs> yeah, so the, the market is basically saying it was 10% overvalued now. All right, okay, yeah. <laughs> moving on. Yeah, so so that's net wealth. And the final company, which is one we've also talked before about before, is Redbubble, the uh, international um, marketplace for independent artists to upload their art. So you can go back and, and listen to some of our recent um, episodes where we talked about this. This is another company I own, I own and it kind of went the opposite direction yesterday. So the perfect hedge for my net wealth shares going up um, just about. Uh, so Redbubble um, allows independent artists to upload their designs to the internet or to their platform. And then Redbubble's network of fulfillers allow customers like myself to purchase um, those, those things, those those designs, put them on, for example, my wall behind me here. I can't, which way am I? This way? No, this way. No, 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 no that, way, that way. Yeah. There it is. There it is. Yeah. So that says, that says science. And uh, it's a poster that comes from an Australian um, artist by the name of Stephen Rhodes. And you get it printed. I want it on a poster. So I got it behind me here. Um, gets delivered by Redbubble in the fancy wrapping and everything like that. And that's basically the business model. Um, Redbubble takes a clip as orders come through, it collects that cash, it pays some out to the the manufacturing company or the fulfiller, and then pays it back to the artist a little while later, uh, their share. So basically, as the business grows, Redbubble has a positive working uh, cash flow flywheel. So as it gets bigger, it collects more cash and it takes a bit longer to pay that money out. Um, The business has been quite frankly, smashed since um, since the um, end of COVID in the United States, basically. The business share price has come back. You can see here from over $6 down to $4.50. 
And the big reason for that is obviously sales have fallen off when people have returned to physical stores. Um, sales have fallen off, and they've also not be- they're not benefiting from mask sales. A lot of people want to customize masks and couldn't get any masks at all during COVID. So we can see here gross transaction volume of one hundred and forty two million dollars during the quarter, down twenty one percent. In terms of the revenue that they generate, one hundred and six million dollars, uh, down twenty eight percent. Gross profit of forty two million dollars, down thirty four percent. Uh, operating cash inflow of $11 million compared to 27 in the first quarter of FY21. Closing cash balance of $109 million, which is pretty good. So why did shares fall, uh, even though everything was in line with guidance? Well, management did say on the call that they made a few things. Obviously, investors uh, don't like to see negatives in the, in the headlines. But one of the things that they did say on the call is that they tried to experiment with marketing costs and they spent a bit on marketing during the period, um, if we drop down to it. And you know, I credit companies with experimenting to try and improve their business model, especially when they have enough cash in the balance sheet. But um, basically, marketing costs were still pretty high as a percentage of marketplace revenue. And so the, I think maybe investors didn't like that. I'm only speculating. You can only speculate on short-term price movements. But I think maybe investors didn't like that. They've said that that will normalize in time. And for those of you that don't understand the advertising ecosystem lately, um, there have been some changes from Apple, obviously, with iOS 14 changing the way that retargeting happens. So that affects um, the marketing ROI of many companies like Redbubble. So here we are, Redbubble spending a bit more. It's guiding for a negative year-over-year first half as it cycles through COVID comps. Um, but then returning to growth. They've got an aspirational target for the long term, which I don't necessarily think they'll deliver on. Our valuation model does not assume that they will meet their 2024 calendar year guidance or at least aspirational target. So yeah, Redbubble, um, it competes against Etsy, Amazon Homemade, maybe even things like Canva in the future. So um, it's got some pretty big competition, some pretty big headwinds, um, but I still think the business itself is in a good position and I think it's well well led. So yeah, that's that's Redbubble fell. What did it fall? Twelve percent yesterday. So that wasn't very nice, but um, that happens in investing. It's not too bad. Twelve percent is nothing. It's like small potatoes. That's that's the that's the what's the price for a mission? Is that right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. That's so. That's yeah. So that's uh, Redbubble. It uh, it's interesting business. So the three interesting businesses there, all kind of small to mid cap. In Australia here, well, NetWell's pretty big now. Um, so three to, three to pop on your watch list. Mate, we've gone a little bit over time, but that's okay. If people want to subscribe to 7investing, I'm guessing they can go to 7investing.com forward slash subscribe. And there's a link in the show notes for anyone that wants to subscribe and get your latest and greatest, potentially, stock idea. Yeah, use the RASK code, R-A-S-K. Yes. Get $10 off your first month. Yeah, the latest and the greatest, the best, whatever or not, you know, well, <laughs> we'll see whether it's the, whether or not it's the best time will tell. Uh, so we'll far, find so out in five yeah. years. <laughs> we'll find out in five years. Right now, uh, yeah, the picks are doing okay. <laughs> yeah, no, they're doing very, very well. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at 7A Mahanthi for Dr. Nirban Mahanthi here and at Owen Rask. Also in the show notes, you can find us there and have a chat. Give us some ideas for next week. We've had uh, Vinoth and Robert ask some questions today via the live chat. We'll be back next week so you can ask us some questions then. And, um, yeah, we look forward to seeing you. So, mate, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for thanks for joining me. This, this connection was brilliant. 
Oh, it's a star link. It's awesome. Yeah. And this, these chats, I love these chats, uh, doing these with you. And uh, it's fantastic actually having some people come by online, ask us questions live, throw some curveballs at us, make it difficult for us, you know, or make it difficult for Owen, not for me, please. I, oh, yes. you know, I, yeah, I didn't even get to prepare. <laughs> um, uh, but, but yeah, and ask us about any particular companies you want us to talk about, stuff like that. Yeah, uh, we just had Mickey just uh, put in a question. Everyone has owned Bubs at some point. Maybe they'll become the goat of the infant milk market. Uh, oh, maybe I love indeed. it, love it, love it, <laughs> love it. Yeah, you, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I really had, um, you know, and I think Bubs could still execute, right? I mean, it can still execute. Um, it's It's got a niche, goat, it's goat, goat. Yeah. um and robin did ask a question uh earlier on to say on uh, the mining companies that focus on lithium um neither of us i think i speak on behalf of us neither of us are big in uh mining but if you do want a short list of of companies that are involved in lithium here in australia what you can do is you can head to um you can find an etf like the acdc etf that focuses on this sector, and then you can go to the ETF securities website and find the list of companies that are in that index. It's a great way to do it. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for joining us and um, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much.